0: My dark passenger is like a trapped coal-miner, always tapping, always letting me know it's still in there, still alive. Tonight's the night, and it's going to
1: happen again and again. He goes off crazier than usual.
2: A census taker once tried to test me.
1: Mommy gets
3: the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. I ate his liver with some fava beans. Not one bit.
1: And a nice
2: Chianti.
1: He takes the knife to her, laughing while he does it. He turns to me, and he says, Why so serious? Hi everyone, I'm Max. And I'm Aaron. We're going to jump right into it, as we have a lot of excellent content lined up for you. Today's episode covers a theme that is often sensationalized in the media, and is currently experiencing a bit of a high on entertainment platforms like Netflix, TV, podcast channels, etc.
4: We will be talking about the space in which serious crime, the law, and mental illness intersect. In other words, we'll be talking about forensic psychiatry. Stay with us for some thought-provoking and eye-opening conversations with the people who play a crucial role in this space, and really see it all, forensic psychiatrists and sex psychologists. Welcome to episode 60 of Raw Talk.
0: Forensic is really just that joining point of law and another discipline. For example, forensic accounting, forensic engineering, and in my case, forensic psychiatry. So it's the application of psychiatry to the legal context. So I would see people, the people that I see are generally referred to me by the legal or employment sectors with questions like, did this fellow have some kind of mental health problem when A, B, or C happened, or does some mental health problem explain his behavior? So that's all forensic really is is the joining point of law and psychiatry.
1: You just heard from Dr. High Bloom. He's a forensic psychiatrist and a lawyer who is the director and CEO of Workplace.com Inc. That is C-A-L-M Incorporated. He consults in workplace conflict and violence prevention and management. Dr. Bloom is also an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and part-time staff in the Complex Mental Illness Forensic Services Program at CAMH.
4: Dr. Bloom makes an important distinction between forensic psychiatry and the rest of psychiatry, such as community-based psychiatrists who see patients for therapeutic intent. Most psychiatrists, as you may know, have a doctor-patient relationship and are there to advocate for their patients' interests and well-being.
0: When you get referred to a forensic psychiatrist, whether it's for a criminal or civil matter, I'm not there to advocate for anyone's interests. I don't take sides, no matter which side hires me, and no matter which side pays me. So I'm there to do an objective evaluation. That's where my dedication is, is to objectivity and truth-finding, because I'm involved in some way in the truth-finding process, even though I'm not the finder of truth, the judge or jury or arbitrator is. So when a person's referred to me for a criminal matter, either by the Crown or the defense, because I'll work any side that's on the other side of the phone calling me first. I will usually hear from the lawyer what the charges are and what it is that they want me to address. Very commonly it's things like, was this fellow, and I'm just giving an example here, uh, was this fellow suffering from a mental disorder at the time that he committed this act of let's say violence or a homicide? And if so, what do you think the connection is between the mental disorder and what he did? Uh, Is that the explanation from a psychiatric perspective for that behavior? So I have to consider whether or not, one, if he has a mental health problem, two, what symptoms was it exerting at the time that he committed the, let's say, the homicide? And um, was there any other motivations at play And was the mental disorder the instrumental reason for why he did what he did? And if it is, if I can give an opinion like that and defend that opinion and it gets accepted by the court, the person may well get a psychiatric defense, like uh, not criminally responsible or diminished responsibility. So on the sentencing side, where responsibility for the act isn't the issue, the question usually is diagnosis, risk, risk reduction, treatability.
1: The challenge in a forensic psychiatrist's job lies in the fact that there are many different factors that may lead someone toward committing a crime in the first place. So, let's backtrack a bit. What do some of these contributing factors look like?
0: There's usually a number of factors kind of operating in concert to bring that about. So, I tend, when I give an opinion about uh, what was going on with someone at the time, generally not to pin someone's behavior on one factor only, and I often use the pie chart analogy. I've used it in court reports, and when I've testified sometimes, I will say that I've dug around this guy's history and and his mental health and assessed him, and I've come up with five, six, seven factors that I think I can implicate as being, as playing a causative role in the behavior. I did that once in the case of a terrorist an evaluation of a guy charged with a Terrorist Act and needed to sort of think about, as an example, was it radical ideology? that is that the only slice in the pie? Or are there other slices in the pie that made this guy do these things that he got arrested for and convicted for? And in his case, I just thought it was a poignant example uh, years ago. Uh, and in any case, I've always found that there's a bunch of slices in the pie. Really, in order to get an NCR defense, really, you need the biggest slice, uh, Uh, Or more than half the pie, and this is just a crude uh, way of looking at it, to really be occupied by um, some driving mental force, some psychotic phenomenon, like voices, which he couldn't resist. He may have resisted them before. In this case, he credibly couldn't resist them, made him do that. Delusions, believing the guy was Hitler and not the actual victim, caused him to do that. So you've got to find that some psychotic explanation really occupies more of the pie chart. But then you're probably going to assign some slice to maybe he was undergoing stress, maybe the effects of some drugs. Not enough drugs on board to explain um, the loss of control, but some drugs on board to explain impairment of judgment, disinhibition, things like that. Then there's um, maybe there's some pre-existing animosity towards the victim never acted on before, but in this particular case, maybe it found some expression in the act towards that victim. Maybe it's childhood factors. Maybe you see an awful lot of this, by the way, in the forensic arena. You see a lot of people who themselves have been victimized earlier in life physical, psychological, sexual abuse and neglect and witnessing violence between the parents and all kinds of things. That's a factor sometimes because it becomes ingrained in the person. They respond to precarious situations in a patterned way. That might be a factor or the factor. It may be something very instrumental, like uh you know, needing to do something to the victim because it gets you something. So I have to think about all these motivations. Deciding, what it, deciding exactly what motivated an accused to do something is really the judge's job, but I can weigh in psychiatrically and may, it may or may not help the court out. If it's an NCR scenario and they buy my opinion, so they've, they've accepted the view that the psychotic disorder was the instrumental explanation for the behavior.
4: Across individuals who have a mental illness, are there factors or impacts, either genetic or environmental, that may differentiate those who commit crimes from those who do not?
2: All the things that drive um, antisociality in the general population also increase risk of antisocial behavior in the population of people who have a psychotic illness. So if you look at studies of people with psychotic illness who are criminal justice involved, you see all of the factors that increase criminality generally occurring in their lives, unsurprisingly. Regrettably, that's sometimes when the conversation ends. So the genetic factors that are there, there's some evidence around the low-activity 5-HT allele as having being a vulnerability factor for antisociality. It's also a protective factor if you grow up in a supportive household. If you have that allele and you grow up in a neglectful or abusive setting, then that somewhat increases your risk of manifesting conduct disorder. There are no determinants of genes, but there are gene environment interaction stuff going on.
1: That was Dr. Sandy Simpson. He is the chief of forensic psychiatry and a clinician scientist at CAMH. Dr. Simpson is also an associate professor at the University of Toronto and recently completed his term as the head of forensic psychiatry division at the university. Let's continue listening.
2: The things that contribute to poor educational achievement, to poverty, to broken homes, to being a victim of abuse or uh, seeing abusive behavior occurring around you, developing an antisocial networks, all of those patterns of personal or social vulnerability all predict adult criminal behaviour, oppositional disorders and conduct disorders and adolescence predict antisocial involvement and early onset drug misuse will as well. A number of those things may also increase your risk of developing a psychotic disorder if you also have the biological risk of developing a psychotic disorder. You start using cannabis in your early teens, you're probably increasing your antisocial risk you're also increasing your onset of psychosis risk some people who have risk of psychotic illness have learning disabilities that may result in educational non-achievement and there may be overlap in factors for those some forms of abuse may increase psych- some the experience of some psychotic experiences as well so there are there's dual causation going on in some of those uh, in some of those areas so That produces a group of people who we see, or it seems to be what we call the early starters. So the people who have antisocial problems before they become unwell, before they develop their psychosis. And then the psychosis may further increase that because when they get unwell, it may exaggerate or further disinhibit aggressive behavior about a third to a half of the people who we look after now some of the early starters will be some of the prison population with people who also have serious mental illness so they have both of those things going on in their lives substance misuse, the risk factors for antisociality and the illness factors, and they may have fewer personal assets or strong relationships or community supports or other things to help you cope with the onset of a, of a serious mental health problem as well, so you've, you know you're further burdened. So those people have got complex interactions with those things. The second group are people who we refer to as the late starters who do not have criminal justice involvement or conduct disorder in their developmental histories before their psychosis develops, but the violence emerges largely or completely as a complication of the illness violence is a complication of acute psychosis, the way arrhythmia is a complication of an acute heart attack. It is a direct manifestation of certain delusional and hallucinatory experiences combined with disturbed, usually frightened and fearful affect. Uh, so certain sorts of command hallucinations, certain sorts of delusional sets, largely a persecutory and grandiose, um, rarely the delusion of doubles, a thing called Capgras Syndrome, uh, is uh, are, they're dangerous ideas and experiences to have, especially when it's combined with uh, and congruent with one's mood state, because mood is, once what you think and experience, mood is the driver to action. And it's usually fear, less commonly anger or entitlement, but mostly, most of psychotic related violence is fear driven, it's self-protective that largely manifests closely amongst the people you know often with close family members or people who are in your close circle of, na- uh, of relationships especially the more serious so there it may be the particular types of symptoms and the, the syndrome that you happen um, to have we don't know enough yet about why those uh, it happens to be those things that matter but very broadly Um, uh, So it's the shape and form of the illness itself and where that sits broadly across your developmental lifespan that seem uh, seem to be relevant.
4: At this point, you might be curious, because we definitely were. What exactly does the process look like when someone who is suspected to have a mental illness commits a criminal offense from the point of arrest? And at which points do forensic psychiatrists come in? We asked Dr. Simpson and Dr. Bloom to walk us through this
2: if somebody's arrested for behavior that's caused rise to public concern and may be a criminal offense if you go through to a charge being laid against you the first issue when the person appears in court is are they able to defend themselves properly Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what fitness to stand trial is about the justice system needs that um, any defendant coming before it Mm -hmm. is able to defend themselves otherwise the moral and ethical basis of law collapses so if you're into severely intellectually disabled or acutely unwell and you cannot instruct counsel about what what's going on in court you can't understand the charge against you or the evidence that's coming or and you can't instruct a lawyer to act on your behalf then you should not be made subject to criminal proceedings and we're the people who come in to help with that so the Crown or the defence or the judge may raise, have concerns about somebody's presentation before the court and they will ask us to give a report on that. If someone's acutely unwell, it may then be recommending coming to a hospital under a treatment order to, for the point of restoring their ability to defend
0: themselves in court. Unfit people kind of still belong to the court in a way. They're on loan, funny way to put it, but they're on loan to the review board until they get well enough with medications or anything else to be fit to stand trial. And once they're fit, they go back to court, they return to the court of origin. Being unfit
2: doesn't um, stay the proceedings, it just suspends them for a period until uh, you're fit once again to defend yourself. Then the next question is, okay, um, so was the person responsible for what they did at the time of the offence? So that's what criminal responsibility is about. So if you're so unwell that you don't know what's called either the nature or quality, so you don't know what it is you're doing, or you don't know that it's morally wrong, so that if you're acting violently, believing that that you're about to be attacked mortally by the devil who will kill you and kill the world and you fight back, then you don't know the moral wrongfulness of your action. It feels morally right for you as you do it, but in in terms of external moral, right or wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. And that's what criminal responsibility is about. So then they will ask for uh, expert testimony from one or two or three, depending on how contentious or serious the case is, forensic psychiatrists to give evidence to court about that.
1: So their role isn't to determine whether or not a person is criminally responsible. That is the duty of the court, who are the quote-unquote finders of fact, Rather, forensic psychiatrists are there to present their expert testimony to the court based on all of the prior assessments that they've conducted. But throughout all of these assessments, how do they discern whether or not the mental illness was the primary explanation for the behavior and for the committing of the criminal offense, which is what is needed for an NCR?
0: So that's a great question, and that's really a central challenging task, along with deciding whether or not the guy is faking in some way or exaggerating. That's another big problem. But... In figuring out whether or not uh, the mental disorder is the responsible agent for the behavior, uh, you do that kind of history, and you try to get as much information as you can. And no doubt, no doubt about it, mental state is invariably analyzed retrospectively. I wasn't there at the time. Most of the time, nobody else is exactly there. If there's a victim, uh, he or she was there, but they may, you know, they may have passed it because of the act. So there's all kinds of bits of information that provide clues, part of the jigsaw puzzle of this guy's mental state at the time, and I try to put the pieces in. And some pieces come from him, his mental state currently. His medical records are really important, like if he's had certain ideas that have put him on the precipice of violent behavior and resulted in a number of hospitalizations before, but this time he went further and actually did the act. I've seen that a number of times. That kind of past records at least tell me that he's had these symptoms, they've come up before, he never acted on them, but at least they're in medical records and appear to be genuine. There is my take on on whether or not his symptoms are genuine uh, in my assessment of him, based on all kinds of information. I don't rely on him entirely. In fact, I, he's only one component of it. I'll have documents, but I'll also interview other people. If I don't read witness statements from the police, which are almost always provided I may choose to interview a bunch of people whether interviewed by the police or not to kind of get a sense of what this guy was like through their eyes in the last year month week day hour or minutes before this thing help putting all those pieces together I can get some kind of take on whether or not the mental disorder was the reason and I also consider other motives if Just like the courts and the lawyers do, if there was pre-existing animosity between the parties, I have to consider whether that was the reason that the killing happened instead of this guy's mental disorder, uh, even if he had one. It may not be the explanation, or it may be a composite of motives. When somebody is found not criminally responsible, they kind of more or less get owned by the Ontario Review Board or the Provincial Review Board, meaning total jurisdiction over them is that of the board until such time, and here's the magic words from the criminal code, until such time as they're no longer a significant threat to the safety of the public. That's the test. The very common pathway for people who have committed marked violence and ended up NCR is to come under the jurisdiction of the board, to be in a psychiatric hospital at a level of security that they need that's necessary to protect the public and them and then to cascade from higher levels of security to lower levels of security with greater privileges, as they get better and as their dangerousness diminishes to a point where they no longer can be said to be a significant threat, then they must be absolutely discharged. But until that happens, they're de-restricted. And sometimes you hear about this stuff in highly publicized cases uh, about people committing atrocious acts while they're mentally ill, and then the press might report the person has been given privileges to wander on the hospital campus or to go into the community and do, uh, do different things. And some people might be outraged by this, but usually these things don't happen until such time as... The clinical team has decided that this person's risk management plan allows for this. In other words, it's safe enough for them to do it. There's enough checks and balances in place, and they're well enough. He's been tested enough to have that, those extra privileges. Eventually, as I said, no longer a significant threat. Out they go into the community, hopefully, to remain in some form of psychiatric follow-up, which, while highly recommended at that point, wouldn't be mandated anymore.
4: If you are a fan of true crime, you've probably heard the term psychopath thrown around a lot. Psychopathy, although not an official clinical diagnosis under the DSM-5, but is classified under antisocial personality disorder, is commonly considered to be a personality disorder characterized by a range of traits and behaviors such as deceptiveness, lack of empathy and guilt, shallow affect, and impulsive behavior. New developments in science suggest that there are brain differences in people with psychopathic tendencies. Could or should they be considered NCR as well?
0: It shouldn't, um, is, is the short answer, but I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of reasoning behind that. I sometimes, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing a talk to trainees, I'll say forensic psychiatry is kind of easy in a way. At the end of the evaluation, all you have to do is say one of three things. Person's a person uh, is a bad apple, a sick apple, or a troubled apple. Troubled apples end up with rehabilitative outcomes. You know, they're given you know, maybe some better sentences with a rehabilitative outcome, like you have to go into therapy. Bad apples end up in jail and sick apples end up in uh, a mental hospital. Uh, That's just the very crude outline I use when I'm kind of describing it. Psychopath would would not fall into the sick apple kind of category. Ordinarily, it's been tried. You know, uh, for example, I guess the argument would be psychopaths come by their problems honestly, strange as that must sound. They haven't picked them off the shelf. They didn't choose to be a psychopath. They had environmental and genetic factors that kind of took them down that pathway. And consequently, there's even been some work that suggests inconclusively that their brains are a bit different through imaging studies, which is very big right now in 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 my field. Even if that's true, and we're still inconclusive about uh, whether or not uh, the differences in brain structure and function in psychopaths are severe enough to limit their ability around their knowledge of their criminal acts and their impact, to justify an NCR defense, our current understanding is that it's a matter of choice as opposed to uh, a matter of defect. They choose not to abide by the same moral standards that everyone else does rather than they can't abide by the same moral standards. And that's because our test in the criminal code uh, is uh, relatively straightforward in the sense that straight knowledge that this act is legally wrong in this country and that most people would condemn it meaning you understand the legalities, moralities involved. If you do, you don't get an NCR defense. And psychopaths understand that just as well as you and I do. They don't like it, don't want to apply it to themselves,
1: but they get it. Let's pause for a second. It's important to note that all of what we've discussed so far assumes that the defendant has been flagged or picked up to be referred for clinical assessment. But as Dr. Simpson explains, this may not always happen.
2: There's a lot of serendipity in your criminal justice pathway where you may, maybe you get picked up at court court, that you're suffering from an illness, maybe your lawyer will flag it and you get an NCR assessment, or maybe for all sorts of reasons you don't qualify for either of those, or you don't want to tell anybody about what's going on inside, or you've offended criminally, it's got nothing to do with your mental illness, but you also have mental health problems. For all of those reasons, serious mental illness is greatly overrepresented in in prisons. So about 15 to 20% by the international epidemiology of which I've contributed to over the years of a standing prison population have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder or current major depression. Health services have a duty of care to those people. So uh, regardless of whether you wind up on a big F, forensic pathway, unfit. NCR, there's a whole large number of people who are with serious mental illness who are encountering the criminal justice system who need care. And seeing that as a health opportunity and a health duty has been one of the major things that I've been dedicated to. So prison epidemiology, the development of assessments of needs, developing of clinical tools to help with that, developing models of care of what a forensic, of what a prison mental health service should look like, piloting that, rolling it out, publishing on it has been a sort of half of my academic uh, productivity, and we've been very successful with that. We're now in the women's prison as well as Toronto South Detention Centre. We see just we get referred to us about three and a half thousand people a year through those programs. We see about two and a half thousand of those each year in toronto south detention center in the vanier center for women and we try and get care rapidly wrapped around those people as quickly as possible There they're remand people so they're turning over quickly their average length of stay is less than four weeks in the prison so we have to move rapidly to detect the need get referred to treatment services and try and get them linked up to community services as quickly as we can so that's a if we fail that group then people people suffer and die at their own hand. If we don't treat people with a serious mental illness well then other people in the community can suffer and die because um, we're not treating the people with acute psychosis.
4: Dr. Simpson also points out that too much of our resources are institution-based and there's not enough community-based follow-up to promote education and skills for reintegration into society. And a potential result of this is that people end up becoming repeat offenders. In general there's a lack of research and evidence-based program creation to better serve and support this vulnerable population both within the correctional institutions and out in the community
2: the area and I use a quote from a New Zealand artist um, called Colin McCann who is a great New Zealand abstract, abstract expressionist who uh, has always stuck with me a, a landscape with too few lovers and forensic is a landscape with too few lovers we have in the mid-teens of endowed chairs and child and adolescent and suicide researchers in the U of T we have no, we have four endowed chairs in forensic psychiatry in the world so we have 20-25 endowed chairs in U of T psychiatry none of them in forensic people don't want to attach their name to this area they don't want to, uh, to think about what it's about, it's the other part yet here we're uh, we're a third of the hospital we're frankly in my view putting too much into biological research and not enough into social determinants and social responses we could shift the dial in terms of outcomes with implementation science research on what we already know what am i doing uh, we're doing we've got a suite of things going on in the area of, of prison mental health we've coined and developed a model uh, for that and we're looking to develop measurement tools to measure that care pathway through corrections to define staffing levels throughput rates under care that we should be achieving and outcome measures of, of what mental health services should be receiving to use as a both a design measure and audit tool and a resource calculator internationally so we've piloted it in four centres. Uh, we hope it'll be rolled out soon in, uh, in other major parts of the world so that we could have a measure of what should be happening in that area. So that's, a, that's about a half of what I do. The other part is better understanding the patterns of risk and recovery for people largely with psychosis and violent behaviour. We've studied that at epidemiological levels in terms of homicide epidemiology, both in New Zealand and here, trying to understand it at individual patient level and trying to understand motivation to violence and trying to make sense of what uh, recovery pathways, what packages of treatment work and how to help people recover from those risks using recovery philosophies, doing that with shared formulations and understandings of risk. So understanding that whole recovery pathway. And the issues in here are tricky because you will read uh, that there's no relationship between mental illness and violence, that it's the same or less than the general population. That's not true. There is a three to four fold in some populations, seven to eight fold, depending on what your base rate of violence in the population is, increased rate of violent behavior by people who have a psychotic illness. Said boldly like that, that's a very stigmatizing statement. The risk lies in acute psychosis. The risk is symptom driven. So good care given early uh, reduces that risk to the same level or lower than the general population so reducing the stigma reducing the barriers to risk having very good services starting at first episode but right across the life course for people with psychosis is the answer to that problem not raising stigma not raising fear in other words the increased risk to the public that comes from people with psychotic illness is thoroughly treatable with good services that's the message we have to give if you wanted to reduce Viol- uh, homicide by people with serious mental illness—they uh, contribute somewhere around about five percent of all societal homicides. So if you think that we're at profound risk to the general population because of people with serious mental illness, whether it's the Vince Lee or the Cash Car or the, you know, the other cause celebrities that uh, that the media focus on at times that is only around about five percent of all of society's homicides so locking up people with mental illness to make the world safer is not the answer providing good care for people decreasing stigma making services
1: acceptable um,
2: effective uh, for people is the answer to uh, to the issues of addressing these uh, these questions
1: Dr. Simpson emphasizes that there is a health duty towards all people with serious mental illness, both within the forensic pathway as well as those who end up in the criminal justice system. It's important for us to appreciate the complexity of these pathways.
4: We are oftentimes exposed to high-profile cases of extreme violence in the media, and this can quickly lead us to categorize people and be polarized in our views. But in doing so, we need to be aware of our own biases towards the relationship between mental health and crime.
0: The highly publicized cases do stir up a lot of public opinion and usually they're centered on extreme violence committed by a guy with a mental health problem. They would be, it's important to really appreciate, and the public wouldn't because I don't think it comes out this way in the media, that these are outlier cases and that extreme violence by mentally ill individuals is very uncommon. In fact, the more common statistic is that if you have a serious mental disorder, like schizophrenia, you're more likely to be a victim of violence than a victimizer. You know, I'm I'm oversimplifying. Other factors can come together and your mental disorder can turn out to be more dangerous, but at baseline, the mental disorder is really not synonymous with having violent tendencies, but that's portrayed that way sometimes in the media.
1: We are often exposed to such extreme examples of violence in the media, as Dr. Bloom points out. Dr. Simpson gives us his take on some of these issues, including gun violence and mass killings.
2: Most mass killing is done by guns, but as we saw in Sri Lanka over the weekend, it's done in other ways as well. So hate-driven mass crimes, or it can be done, we've just had the one-year anniversary of North York van mass killing, and we've seen that in europe as well with people driving vans and trucks into crowds so the they're not the same thing last year was a bad year for gun violence in toronto almost none of that had anything to do with with mental illness and the only one that where that was raised significantly was the danforth incident and the the man probably had some mental health issues but we don't know what and he died and that as a part of that i think by his own hand, but we don't know anything further about that. He would not have done that if we didn't have a problem with the availability of handguns amongst antisocial young men, because he got the gun from his brother, it would seem. That was the way it was reported, and that gun was part of an antisocial subculture. If we want to reduce gun-related homicides, There is very good evidence-based ways that that can be done. The best evidence for that comes out of the public health-guided initiatives around knife crime in Scotland. And it was built on local neighbourhood interventions in in antisocial impoverished parts of the states where they developed public health strategies around uh, reducing gun crime And the great thing about the states is that because the funding for those programs went on and came off and went on and came off, they can show when the services are on, gun crime goes down, services come off, gun crime rises. So you get these obscene natural experiments. (laughs) But Glasgow was the knife homicide capital of Europe in the early 2000s. They didn't have one knife homicide in Scotland last year. But how did they do it? They targeted the antisocial gangs and got the leaders of those out. They brought in stiff penalties for um, carrying knives, but the cops realised that they were never going to stop and search their way out of the problem. They had uh, doctors uh, um, against gun crime, they had the mothers of the victims, they had school-based initiatives, and they put educational development in. So they identified the kids who were at risk, And they got them into education, into job training, and they celebrated their successes. So you give kids a different line to go in. You pass the messages as to how destructive knife crime is, and you lead them in different ways. They've done that with gun crime. In the U.S., we could do exactly the same here. The problem is, generally in the U.S., gun control has been taken away as an issue of public policy. So if you think of that suite of things they did in Scotland, the gun control piece t- gets taken out. So the only bit you're left with is developing things for antisocially at-risk youth. Well, you're not allowed to do that in America because they've got a mass incarceration policy. the new Jim Crow, where these are all nasty guys who deserve to be locked up. So we we're just pandering... To the thugs if we do that, so no we can't do that either, so the only group uh, you're left with to target in terms of public safety are the people with mental illness, who as I said earlier are a very small part of crime generally, less than 5% of crime can you put at the mental health related piece. So could we uh, comprehensively attack gun crime in uh, the GTA by those methods? Yep, we can. Are some of those pieces in place? Yes. Is the whole of government commitment to that present here at the moment? No, it isn't. Mass killings are a very rare but important subset of that. And amongst those, there is a greater over-representation of people with mental illness. It's not 5%, it's more like 30 to 40. But the statement that you said is that you must be mentally unwell to do it does not hold. And that has to be the lesson from terrorism. So all of the terrorist attacks in the US last year were right-wing extremism. Some of those people may have paranoid disorders or things of that sort. The overwhelming majority do not. What creates and propagates hate, which is, we probably need to think about that from a public health perspective if we're going to alter some of these things. So the messages are, don't take the levers for change off the agenda and the way in which the U.S. has. Think of it, the best interventions are complex and multi-layered, and integrated in terms of how they're done. things. And issues like gun crime and local antisociality are soluble. Not eliminatable, but vastly reducible, is what the Scottish message tells us.
1: Alongside acts of gun and mass violence, child abuse is another mainstay in the media. Our society views sexual abuse of children as one of the most heinous crimes, and rightly so. Lately, though, it seems as if there's been a barrage of media coverage of pedophilia, from the documentaries featuring the victims of R. Kelly and Michael Jackson to the decades of headlines of the Catholic clergy.
4: Despite this uptick in attention, our next guest tells us that the rates of child sexual abuse has been on the decline for quite a while now. Dr. James Cantor is a psychologist and senior scientist at CAMH. His research focuses on the neurological basis of pedophilia and paraphilias, or atypical sexual interests. While helping pedophiles might not be the first thing people think about when trying to address child abuse, his hope is that by understanding how this problem starts, we can figure out how it can
1: end. In our conversation, we learned that for pedophilia, we have identified many, many physiological markers by which we can say that there is something about the brain development that makes these individuals physiologically different from non-pedophiles. Here's Dr. Cantor.
3: When we first started these studies, we had already established by then that there were several neuropsychological differences. Certain, you know, very minor, very mild behavioral differences or or patterns of strengths and weaknesses that pedophiles showed. Some of them were just, you know, small malformations on the skin, like attached to your lobes, or they were more likely to be, much more likely actually, to be left-handed things that only happen before birth. These are things that you know, uh, one does not learn, you know, they don't change after birth. So any, anything I could find that ultimately tells me what was going on at an early period of development, that gives me a very strong evidence in the nature-nurture debate for whether this is a brain reflecting experiences or whether these are behaviors reflecting brain anatomy. Now, in our first MRI studies, really all we were expecting was stuff to be on the surface of the brain. That's where, you know, it's all the gray matter was, and in those days, you know, that's where everything interesting was. So that's what we were looking for. And when we started running the numbers in the series of analyses, and it was just page after page after page of nothing after nothing after nothing, blank after blank, every, you know, it was supposed to be just a bright, colorful, you know, design showing you where the significant differences was, but everything was just black and white and gray. I was lucky, however, in that uh, I had very good research assistants who were, you know, chunking through the numbers at the time. And even though, you know, I was essentially ready to just give up and just crawl under a rock, uh, they continued running uh, kinds of analyses that normally wouldn't be done, rather than just uh, limiting themselves to the surface area of the brain, to the cortex, which is where, as I say, everything hot always seemed to be they were also running scans on subcortical stuff which again I had no reason to think that you know the lizard brain stuff would be any different but whatever they were running it anyway but on the way there they also found that there were these dramatic deficits in white matter White matter is the connective tissue. It doesn't do anything. It's just the axon tails that hang off, you know, the actual parts of the neuron cell that, you know, that actually are active. What could connective tissue possibly have to do? It made absolutely no sense to me. And then I just ran into this one other paper, a meta-analysis by Serge Stolarou in France, talented researcher, neuroscientist. It was a meta-analysis of uh, activation studies, which, again, especially in those days, was particularly advanced. Essentially, he took all of the brain activation studies of people who were shown porn while in an, uh, either EEG or fMRI or so on to show which parts of the brains became more active when the person was sexually aroused. And he showed it was about, you know, a, half dozen di- about a dozen different regions. Fascinating. And as I read, read through the list, uh, the list of regions that lit up when somebody is shown porn, I said, wait a second, all those areas are the same areas that are connected through the same frickin' chunk of connective tissue that we just found was deficient in the pedophiles. They weren't deficient in just any clump of connective tissue. They're deficient in the clump of tissue that's supposed to connect the various parts of the sex response system into one sex response network. It's like there was a cross-wiring, but in the pedophiles, viewing the kids seems to be triggering the sex response system, either in addition to or instead of the avuncular caring kind of instinct. All of a sudden, all of this bizarre stuff made sense.
1: Dr. Cantor touched on some of the physiological changes that can happen before birth in pedophiles. We asked if sexual abuse experienced during childhood can also lead to perpetrating abuse as an adult. The thing that seems to affect the
3: brain when it suffers abuse is not the kind of abuse, but the stress the person was under. All of the research on how the brain responds long-term to stress show the same thing whether, uh, whether it was sexual abuse, non-sexual violent abuse, or even just neglect. So really, although sexual abuse does seem to uh, 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 predict several problematic uh, outcomes in adulthood, it doesn't seem to be specific to sexual abuse. It's any kind of abuse, so it's really the stress that does it one of the long-term effects appears to be an inability to deal with stress. And so taking a kid with a vulnerability towards stress because of how he developed in, uh, in the womb, again, in these cases, they're mostly he, uh, a kid who is uh, abused in childhood, and so again doesn't have the opportunity to, for example, compensate for stresses that accumulated in the womb. Now doesn't have the deal have the ability to deal with stresses, or has a hampered ability to deal with stresses in adulthood. Well, if he has a predilection, if he had uh, towards pedophilia, if he has something you know that he's not as interested in, when he is under stress in adulthood, has no other way to deal with stress. Men often use sex to deal with stress. Men use sex and orgasm to relax, to fall asleep. It's self-soothing. Well, if the only thing that soothes him is the thing that you know he doesn't have as much impulse control to deal with, no role models that ever taught him the skills to handle either the stress or his sexual interest pattern, this is the person more likely to actually act out and commit abuse. And so it seems to be that pattern, that inability to inhibit ourselves, seems to be the link between childhood abuse and adult abuse. It doesn't seem to be the kind of sexual abuse begets sexual abuse in that kind of learned, like-makes-like kind of way. It seems to be chaotic childhoods beget chaotic adulthoods. you know A sexually abused child could just as easily end up being a physically abusing adult, or a neglected child could end up a sexually abusing adult. There doesn't seem to be a one-to-one correspondent. It's kinda, as I say, it's chaos begets chaos. There doesn't seem to be a learning or genetic component, even though there does seem to be an intergenerational transmission of problems.
4: So what makes the difference between someone that has a sexual interest and acts on these thoughts, versus another who doesn't?
3: The most important thing about understanding pedophilia and the definition of pedophilia is the, it's a standard Venn diagram between pedophilia and child abuse. Some pedophiles abuse children, some do not. Some child abusers are pedophilic, most of them are not. Roughly two-thirds of people who commit sexual offenses against children are actually not pedophilic. They actually prefer adults as sex partners but use the kid kind of as a surrogate. Now, the pedophiles who are not child molesters, and they call themselves at this point uh, virtuous pedophiles. Dan Savage used to call them the gold star pedophiles. Uh, These are people who realize through, you know, no fault of their own, they're into kids. They didn't pick it. They figured it out as they were growing up, you know, the rest of us when we're 10, 11, 12, 13, we get crushes on 10, 11, 12, 13, that's that. But these people, by the time they start hitting 17, 18, 19, and they're still getting crushes on 11, 12, 13, they only just then start realizing something's up, and they realize immediately they can't tell a soul. Now, the best that they can do and what many of them do do is swear themselves essentially to a life of celibacy, You know, completely unknown to anybody else. So as I say, there is also a group of pedophiles who are not child molesters and they are invisible. So for understanding each of them, we need to remember that we're actually looking at two important psychological and neuroscientific factors. One is the sexual interest pattern. They're into children or into adults, and as best as we can tell, that's neurological. The other is antisociality and psychopathy. And again, as best as we can tell, that also has very, very strong neuropsychological correlates. Now, a person can have one one, the other, or both. A person who's psychopathic or antisocial, you know, they will steal whatever they want. You know, they, they're the ones who will grab, they will attack, you know, and in the truly dangerous ones, you know, they're the ones who abduct and really, really hurt people. They're fortunately rare. But the problem really is not the pedophilia exactly. It's the antisociality and the psychopathy. The difference between... Being a pedophile or not is really the difference of whom they are going to choose as a victim. It's not really a difference of whether they're going to have a victim. If a person is a psychopath and they only get off on hurting somebody, they're going to hurt A, whatever it is they're into. If they're into adults, that's who they will hurt. If they're into kids, that's whom they will hurt. Now, of course, we have a very natural, you know, larger guarding instinct to, you know, the kids that are in danger, which is perfectly correct. But if we want to understand what's going on in the brain in order to detect it, prevent it, you know, to figure out, you know, whatever way to make it less likely that a person will develop in the first place and so on, uh, we need to treat each of these as distinct phenomena,
1: in order to fully understand this quite complex problem, sometimes helps to try and understand all of the perspectives.
3: The pedophiles themselves, in general, do not want to be pedophiles. They w- don't want, a, a, imagine what a curse it is to have to live an entire life with a sexual interest pattern you cannot express, ever, once, zero tolerance, no exceptions, not so much as porn. Right, I couldn't imagine a curse to wish on someone, but that's the situation they're in, and if we could prevent that, them from being in that position, they would love for me to be able to find a way to treat this or prevent it from developing in the first place. An attempt to find a conversion therapy you know, is a very, very different ethical situation than for you know, regular gays and lesbians you know, where have a good time, get married, enjoy
4: Dr. Cantor tells us that there have been attempts to change pedophiles into non-pedophiles, but such claims haven't really been legitimate or successful thus far. Dr. Cantor also described a very stark climate for people who have these types of sexual desires. He often hears from clients he treats that they wish they didn't experience these feelings, yet these aren't things that they can necessarily just turn off. So in light of this, what kinds of supports are there for pedophiles? Are there resources they can access to help them avoid acting on their desires?
3: There's a group that I, you know, cannot endorse enough, and they call themselves the Virtuous Pedophiles. It took me a while to be able to say that phrase because it just is such a counterintuitive phrase, but I've gotten used to it and it actually does fit. So these are people who recognize their sexual attractions to children, and because, of course, they have no other place to turn, they support each other. That sometimes it's just reminding each other that they're not the only one in the world. And it's just, you know, random, just kind of chit chat, just with the only other people who know their deepest, darkest secrets. So they feel like they have a greater attachment than they can, or a, a different but very important kind of attachment that they can't with their friends in their regular physical offline lives. Their website is uh, virped.org, virtuouspedophiles.org. I would like to be able to send people in to therapists. Unfortunately, the mandatory reporting situation has made that very, very difficult. If we think that there's a child some, uh, uh, someplace uh, in need of protection, if uh, they're being abused, for example, by somebody in their family, we find out about it, we have to report that to the Children's Aid Society and to anybody else as necessary to protect that child. That's perfectly fine. Unfortunately the way things go and the way people behave is not exactly according to the letter of the regulation, but according to what they think will get them sued. We need to have some specific method, either anonymous or some statement that the mental health professionals can use really to give us the kind of confidentiality that other jurisdictions have. I can understand the idea you know, oh my God, you know somebody is being hurt, you want to report them to the police in order to stop the hurt. But really, once you permit that, all you're doing is stopping the person from making from telling the shrink in the first place. You haven't protected anybody. The hysterical public and the legislators are tap- patting themselves on the back for being bad by the bad yeah, bad to the bad guys, but all they've done is driven the problem underground where we can't help anybody. It's insane.
1: When a sex offender is convicted. What does the rehabilitation process look like?
3: Many programs have been put in place to treat sex offenders, but very few of them are based on any kind of science. I I don't know what to call it. The closest term I have is um, when Stephen Colbert said truthiness. These treatments are filled with therapy-ishness. You know, it's a lot of stuff that, you know, it borrows terms that are familiar. You know, it uses terms like CBT and it says learning and, you know, it looks legit. But none of them have been tested. It's not like anybody, you know, let's take a hundred people, put them in this program, another hundred people, put them in that program and look up what happens in 10 years. Nobody's done that kind of stuff. Uh, Or at least to the extent that kind of thing has happened, uh, the answer has been the treatment really doesn't matter. The primary thing that makes the difference between somebody who's going to commit another offense or not is exactly the thing that the public doesn't want to hear give these people a chance to reintegrate into society in a healthy way. Help them find a job, get an education, help them you know, rehabilitate themselves, find a place to live, find a place to work. When people have a life worth defending, they will do what they need to defend their life and keep on the straight and narrow. When people have nothing left to lose, they behave like people with nothing left to lose. But all we've done with these angry policies is make sure they have nothing to lose. We should help them. But that requires a level of empathy, mercy, forgiveness, and understanding that is unheard of today. One of the most wonderful phrases I heard to help people get past the unbridled anger that is really fueling this kind of hysterical legislation is to forgive people, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. We have every reason. I understand it's hard and that, you know, the gut reaction is the anger, but that's not where the solution's going to be.
4: Taking in all that we've touched on in this episode, we can now deeply appreciate the work that professionals in the forensics field do on a daily basis.
1: The popularity of true crime has skyrocketed. From our beloved serial podcast to Netflix's Making a Murderer and recently, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Many of us really gravitate towards true crime, But have you ever wondered why?
4: Maybe because the subject matter itself is compelling. It's inherently intriguing. But at the root of it, true crime stories are stories about the human condition. What drives someone to commit such extreme morbid acts? We want to understand human behavior and the forces behind something that we could only imagine to be inconceivable. We are curious about other people's stories. And it's also an opportunity for us to learn about the broader societal structures we live in that house issues like mental health, sexual and physical abuse, and neglect.
1: And I think today's episode helped us do just that. Our wonderful guests helped us open our eyes to an area and a population that our society may tend to turn away from. We would like to thank Dr. Bloom for your insights into the intersection of the criminal justice system and the practice of forensic psychiatry. To Dr. Simpson for your reminder that our society's health duty towards all individuals with serious mental illness and to Dr. Cantor for your frank discussion on the science of paraphilia and pedophilia, and for creating a little empathy with regards to those phenomena.
4: Today's episode was hosted by Max and myself, Aaron. Help with content production by James and Alex. Production and sound design by Max.
1: Until Until next time, time, keep keep it it raw. raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.